Our second lesson comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 13, verses 10 through 17, and you can find this on page 71 in the New Testament section of your Pew Bibles. Now Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, and just then there appeared a woman with a spirit that had crippled her for 18 years. She was bent over and quite unable to stand up straight. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said, Woman, you are set free from your ailment. When he laid his hands on her, immediately she stood up straight and began praising God. But the leader of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had cured on the Sabbath, kept saying to the crowd, There are six days on which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be cured, and not on the Sabbath day. But the Lord answered him and said, You hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to give it water? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham whom Satan bound for 18 long years, be set free from this bondage on the Sabbath day? When he said this, all his opponents were put to shame, and the entire crowd was rejoicing at all the wonderful things that he was doing. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. She spent a lot of time looking at people's feet. She knew who spent the most money on shoes, and who neglected to cut their toenails. She was something of an expert on bunions. She didn't spend much time looking people in the eye. Because of that, she had grown accustomed, as many people with disabilities do, to being ignored, passed over, overlooked. She loved kids since she saw at about their level Plus, they seemed less afraid of her than the adults. Kids and dogs. Dogs were also easy for her to see, and they didn't judge her for her infirmity. But kids and dogs couldn't make up for the way most people treated her. After 18 years of being bent over, by what we presume was some disease of the spine, it wasn't just her physical body that was crippled. It was her very spirit. Her condition kept her from doing many things, going to parties, any kind of physical work that would require her to stand up straight. But one thing it did not prevent her from doing was coming to worship on the Sabbath day. Ironically, she was forced into what many religions would say is really the only appropriate position for worship, bowing down before God. Any other preacher might have looked out over that congregation that day and thought, well, at least one person here has assumed the appropriate posture for worship. But Jesus knew better. What he saw was a woman bent and twisted, not just in body, 
but in spirit. He saw a woman who needed to be set free. Sharon Snyder was a clerk for a circuit court judge in, in Missouri. People often came to her requesting documents that might help them as they tried to prove the innocence of a loved one who had gone to jail. In 2009, a woman came and told the story of her brother, a man named Robert Nelson, who had been convicted of rape and who had already served 25 years of a 70-year term. The woman insisted that her brother was innocent. At the time of Nelson's conviction, DNA testing had not been available, but now that it was, Nelson wanted to file a motion to have DNA testing done on the evidence from his case. Snyder gave Nelson's sister the documents she requested, but sometime later the sister came back and told Snyder that Nelson's request for DNA testing had been denied. Nelson filed another request, which was also denied. Neither he nor his sister could figure out why. Then Sharon Snyder remembered a similar case where a request for DNA testing had been granted. The paperwork for that request was now a matter of public record, and so Snyder showed it to Nelson's sister. Using that request as a template, Nelson filed for a third time, and this time his request was granted. The evidence was tested and showed that Nelson was innocent. Thirty years after he went to prison, Robert Nelson was set free. Two weeks later, Sharon Snyder was suspended without pay for allegedly violating a law that forbid her from offering legal advice or counsel. A few days after that, she was fired. At 70 years old, Snyder had worked in that office for 34 years and was nine months away from retirement. When Ira Glass interviewed her for his radio show, This American Life, he asked her if there was anything good that had come from what had happened after she helped Robert Nelson. He expected her to say something like, well, I got to be retired earlier than I planned. I've spent more time with my grandkids. I've gotten to do a bunch of TV and radio interviews. But her answer referenced none of these things. Instead, she said this, the good thing that came from this is that Robert Nelson is free. And I'm so happy for him. I'm glad I did what I did because it was for a worthy cause. Even though I lost my job and it put me in a financial bind, it was worth it. I would do it again. According to the strictest definitions of Sabbath law, Jesus broke the rules that day when he healed the woman who had been bent double for 18 years. According to those who interpreted the scriptures, no work was permitted on the Sabbath and healing was considered work. Jesus knew the rules. He knew how the fourth commandment was interpreted, but he was more concerned with setting people free. When he saw this woman, he did not see a dangerous temptation to rule breaking. He saw a human being 
a daughter of Abraham, as he calls her, a woman bound by the laws of biology and physics that had folded her body in two and nearly broken her spirit. He saw a woman isolated from other people, a woman regularly treated like she was less than human, like she had little to offer the world. He saw a woman who had suffered for too long, and he did not hesitate. He healed her. She didn't ask him to do it. She didn't seek him out. She may not have even known that he would be there that day. But when he saw her, Jesus didn't stop to count the cost or call a meeting or check the rule book. He did what God does best. He set her free. Not surprisingly, Jesus immediately gets in trouble for breaking the rules. And before we get too judgmental of the religious leaders, we should be clear that if any of us had been there, chances are we would have agreed with them. Most of us like to do things decently and in order. We like to follow the rules. The rules give us boundaries, a sense of security. They let us know what we should and shouldn't do, and few of us like to see them broken. But Jesus reminds us that for God, there is something more important than rules. Love is more important. Relationships are more important. Freedom to live into our God-given identity is more important. And so, as Jesus shows us here and elsewhere, God will break rules to set people free. God breaks rules to set us free. Isn't that why we're here? Why else would we give up our precious time to sit in this place that looks and sounds unlike any other place in our lives. Why would we do that? If not because we are hoping against hope that we will meet a God who sees us in a way no one else does, who sees past our deformities, the ones we hide and the ones we can't hide, who sees beyond our desperate attempts to appear like we have it all together, We've got it all under control, even if we're not always sure what it is. God who looks at us and sees not our race or gender or sexuality or age or citizenship or profession or whether we fit neatly into some category called normal that someone else established. Didn't we come here hoping to meet the God who looks at us and calls us by name, and names us God's own, and sees whatever burden has bent and twisted our spirit, and instead of telling us to come back at a more appropriate time, moves heaven and earth to set us free. They say that wisdom comes from unexpected places, but when a friend told me that I should watch the actor Ashton Kutcher's speech at the MTV Teen Choice Awards from a few years ago, I was more than a little skeptical. Kutcher started the speech by thanking his fans, acknowledging that without them, he wouldn't get to do the work he loves. 
Then he said that in the world of Hollywood, where there are all kinds of insider secrets about making it in the business, he often feels like a fraud. My name is not even Ashton, he admitted. Ashton is my middle name. My first name is Chris. It got changed when I was 19 and became an actor. But back when I was Chris, I learned some really important things. He shares three of these things. The first is that opportunity looks a lot like hard work. The second is that the sexiest thing in the world is to be smart, thoughtful, and generous. And third, that somewhere along the way, we get told that the world is the way it is, and our job is to follow the rules, maybe to get an education and a job, to make money, have a family. But he told them life can be so much more than that. When we realize that all of these rules were made up by people who are no smarter than we are, and that rather being so tightly bound by them, we are free to build the life we want to live, not the life someone else tells us we should live. It was a couple of millennia earlier, but the prophet Jeremiah knew exactly what it was like to feel constricted by what society said he was capable of. When God calls him to be a prophet, his response is, you must be joking, God. I'm just a boy. But God sets him free from that idea. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I made you a prophet, God says. Don't you dare say, I'm only a boy. You are not what other people say you are. You are mine. God is simply not interested in how the world has bent and twisted us according to the rules that say this is what it looks like to be a man, a woman, a grown-up, a parent, a spouse, a teenager, a student, an addict, a failure, a nobody. Whatever it is the world has told you, you are. God is here to set you free so you can live from your identity as God's beloved. So that you can know you are exactly what God had in mind when God made you. And that God loves you no matter how bent and twisted you have become. She had spent a lot of time looking at people's feet. It was the view she knew best until she discovered that God's love for her was greater than any infirmity and stronger than any of God's own rules. When God set her free, she stood up straight and praised God, freed to worship with joy and thanksgiving. And once she knew her primary identity, it's a pretty safe bet that she was able to see those around her as God's beloved children, too. For she learned that God does not set us free for our own sake, or even for God's own sake. God sets us free 
for the sake of all God's children. As I read the paper this morning with today's sermon on my mind, I was struck by an editorial written by Reggie Gordon. He observes that Richmond citizens are too often separated by demographic and socioeconomic differences, differences that prevent us from seeing and really knowing one another. He writes, I believe that Richmond is ripe for a compassionate movement of thought and deed about how to connect to one another. We've retreated into literal and figurative bunkers for too many years. He goes on, we need to listen to and understand one another's stories, leaving behind our suspicions, narratives, and biases about another person's race, gender, or socioeconomic level, embracing the possibility that everything we think we know about that person could be incorrect. That kind of compassion is exactly what Jesus extends to this woman and to us all, accepting us just as we are and setting us free, not for our sake, but for the sake of the world, a world that through our actions can become more like what Jesus calls the kingdom of heaven. God calls us to spread the good news of God's love by seeing people the way Jesus sees us, not according to their outer appearance or the world's rules or expectations, but through the lens of God's unchanging, undying, unconditional love. Amen.